Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinityradio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to be taking a look at Genesis chapter 32 and what it means to wrestle with God. Now, if you typically come to this channel because you like to watch the um, response videos that I make to atheists and and things like that, um, this is a little bit different. This is a video that is a part of a series through the book of Genesis with apologetics in mind. And you can watch already over 30 hours of that series by going to YouTube.com slash Braxton Hunter and clicking on the playlist for the Genesis series. Or if you just want the audio only version, you can go to um, BraxtonHunter.com and click on the verse by verse there and you can get it there as well, just as audio that you can download. But I'm so glad that you're here today. And um, I hope that if this is your first time discovering this series through the book of Genesis, that you'll spend some time, whether you're a Christian, an atheist, or something else, I think that there's something of value in it. And even if you're a convinced atheist who says, I really don't, there's not much of a chance that I'm ever going to come around to Christianity. Well, even in such a case, um, these, this is a document of literature that has impacted the world in an incredible way. And the value of studying it merely for that reason would, should be enough. Of course, it is my hope, and I don't make any bones about it, that you will um, come to see it as the inspired Word of God. And uh, particularly the passages that we're studying now are showing us how uh, Israel developed um, and uh, became the nation that was so prominent in the Word of God that ultimately culminates in the story of our salvation and the kingdom of God. So with that, uh, we're going to begin. We're going to cover two chapters in this one video today, and um, they're chapters that are very strange. They take us on somewhat of a roller coaster of emotions because they have to do with concepts such as fear, anxiety, protection, and ultimately wrestling with God quite literally in this passage. But most Christians, I think, know something of wrestling with God. I know that in my own life there have been times where I was wrestling with God in a sense. Um, I I know that in my uh, mid-teenage years I was struggling with God in the sense that it was pretty evident and should have been pretty evident in my life that what God wanted for me was to go into the gospel ministry in some form or other. And um, I didn't want that. I wanted to be a musician, and so I was somewhat on the run from that. And it took something pretty obvious, and I mentioned this recently on one of our podcasts and one of our YouTube videos unrelated to this series, but um, I told God in prayer that if that's what He wanted, He would have to make it abundantly clear to me. And I'm not a very mystical sort of guy. I've never heard the voice of God audibly or seen God visibly. But uh, I was sitting on the front row of a little church, and when I opened my eyes from prayer and looked up, the communion table was right in front of me, and there listed on it, it it had the words, uh, this do in remembrance of me. And I just asked God, is this really what I should do? Is this what you want me to do? 
And that was a pretty obvious um, indication to me that that's what God wanted for my life. I was actually pretty upset about it even then. I wasn't happy. Uh, there are a lot of people who are excited to be called to the ministry. They look at a pulpit, and the idea of preaching sermons makes their mouth water. This was not the case with me. With me, I wasn't happy about this. I didn't want to be in the gospel ministry. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a rock star. Um, but I had wrestled with God to that point. Now, I, it's, it's been a wonderful blessing in my life, um, having been in the gospel ministry. But I think most Christians can think of times in their lives with certain things that God may have wanted them to do, where they wrestled with God about that for a while. Unbelievers certainly um, know what it's like to wrestle with God, whether they recognize it as such or not. Um, I have a close friend who... Um, he grew up in a Christian family and, and was professing Christ uh, throughout his teenage years and into college. And when he first began going to college, uh, he started wrestling with certain things that he wanted to be true about his life, certain direction he wanted his life to go that was not biblically permissible. And as a result, um, he, he began to change how he viewed Scripture. Maybe Scripture isn't all true. Maybe it's kind of like take, take what you want and leave the rest, kind of like a buffet. Um, and then he kind of was thought, well, you know, and maybe with some of the new friends that I'm making who are not Christians, maybe I don't have to reach them for Christ. Maybe the truth is um, Jesus is my way, but he's not necessarily everyone's way. And he continued to wrestle with God and became an atheist. And uh, in fact, just today for lunch, I was talking with a mutual friend of ours who said that he presented this friend with um, some apologetic reasons to believe that the supernatural exists and that uh, perhaps we survive death and you know, near-death experiences and things like that. And our mutual friend who has turned from God was open to those sorts of things because those don't really mean you have to change your life. In fact, those can be somewhat comforting. But then when, my friend, when our mutual friend presented arguments for the truth of Jesus, the resurrection and things like that, um, this unbeliever became somewhat hostile to the very idea of it because even now he's still wrestling from God. And when he first began to turn away when we were both in college, and he first declared himself an atheist, I should say, I remember asking him, well, if that's true, if you really don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why don't you curse Jesus right now? Why don't you say, I don't believe in Jesus? Jesus is not Lord. And he said, well, I wouldn't say that. That's silly. And I said, well, yeah, but you believe it. Well, yeah, but there wouldn't be a point. I said, well, the point would be to prove to yourself that you really mean what you're saying right now. He couldn't bring himself to do it because he was still wrestling with God. I think many unbelievers know what it's like to run from or wrestle with God in terms of their own salvation. And we're going to talk more about salvation today. And I think Christians know what it's like to uh, wrestle with God as it relates to sin in their own lives. I think for all of us who are believers, there are particular sins that have been reoccurring themes throughout portions of, if not most of, our Christian walk. One of, my, uh, one of the guys that I respect the most uh, was an elderly pastor. He used to pastor Park Avenue Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee, which at one time was the largest, one of the largest churches in Nashville, if not the largest, Bob Mowry. And Bob Mowry died just a few years ago at the age of, I think, 88 years old. Wonderful, wise, godly man. And even he said that oftentimes the Christian walk is three steps forward and two steps back. And you should be on a progression toward becoming like Christ. But, um, but, but there are so many times where we fall back. And it's, uh, it's not always the clean and perfect 
uh, jaunt to becoming like Christ that we wish that it was. And I think there's truth in that, and that is a part of our wrestling with God and what He wants even after we're Christians. Today we're going to take a look at that in the life of Jacob in this famous story where he wrestles with God. So let's go ahead and begin. We're going to see more than that, obviously, and we're going to see his um, encounter with Esau, uh, his brother. In fact, um, it's been uh, a long time since he's seen Esau, and he has reason to be afraid about that experience. The last thing that we saw of Jacob is he, when he dealt with things with Laban, um, the, uh, the father of his wives, Rachel and Leah. And so now uh, we're going to pick up there and see Jacob continuing on toward the promised land um, that is a part of the promise of God. So chapter 32 begins in verse 1. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him. Well, I should, I should stop right there and just say that there are some interesting things to say about this um, encampment of angels or this, um, this group of angels that he meets. Uh, what's the point of this? Well, it's likely that the appearance of these angels is merely meant to assure Jacob that God is with him and there's going to be a certain amount of protection that God is on his side. I know there are certainly times in my life where I would have loved to know that I had armies of angels around me. And I believe it's probably true that believers are often accompanied by angels that we just don't see or know that are there. Um, but I think that's probably what's happening here because otherwise we would expect some kind of message from these angels. Um, and it seems like there is a serious number of angels like an army because he names this place two camps, probably referring to his camp, Jacob's camp, because remember, Jacob's got quite an entourage with him. And then the camp of the angels. Now, it actually becomes difficult to tell, frankly. Most people say this. Most people say it's two camps. Uh, Mahanaim because you've got Jacob's camp and the angels camp or the or the group of angels that are there. But this could be seen several ways. Um, Esau is going to show up in this story. And so uh, you'll then have Jacob's camp and you'll have Esau's camp. So two camps. Then you've also got Jacob's camp and the angels camp. And then to complicate things more in this passage, Jacob is going to divide his own camp into two separate camps. Um, as part of a strategy of possibly escaping Esau because he thinks Esau is going to try to hurt him. So you could say it's two camps because of that. Um, so perhaps it's one of those things or perhaps it's all of those things. Uh, but it seems like the fact that it says in uh, verse 2, Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim, that it's because of the angels. So he's got there's a camp of angels. There's a camp of Jacob and his family. Um, this uh, in, in the Walter Brueggemann says in his Genesis commentary, the angels belong to the fabric of the story. They are a way of the strange power of God. God is here at work. Military metaphors are needed to express the protection uh, given Jacob. The narrative begins with a safe conduct for Jacob, assured by God. So the scholars seem to, all, you know, no matter where you look, it seems like the scholars agree this is to give Jacob some assurance here. But it's also interesting uh, in the, uh, the uh, Bible study notes from the NET, it says the phrase angels of God occurs only here and in Genesis 28, 12 in the Old Testament. Now, this, this is important because this means that it kind it seems like, well, I'll just finish the quote, but it seems like that whenever there is an, when Jacob is exiting and then entering um, this land, there is this special entourage of angels 
if not right at the border, at least when he's on his way. So the the commentator here continues, Jacob saw a vision of angels just before he left the promised land. Now he encounters angels as he prepares to return to it. The text does not give the details of the encounter, but Jacob's response suggests it was amicable. This location was a spot where heaven made contact with earth and where God made his presence known to the patriarch. So the authors of this story are wanting you to, to notice that and remember what happened there in Genesis 28. And they're wanting you to recognize what's happening now that the promised land and coming in or going out of the promised land, especially for this member of the family of the promise, this chosen family of the promise, Abraham's family, um, is a big deal. This is this is a big thing. This is something that we should not take lightly because it's a very important part of the story that this land is involved. But it's also a very important part of the story that we find Jacob being uh, making God the God of his fathers. Uh, his God too, and being submissive to that God. And that's going to be a major theme in this passage. So um, let's go on and finish. It says in ver- uh, verse three, then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them saying, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Okay. So he's, he's now, um, notice he refers to himself as the servant of Esau. He says, say, your servant, and he refers to Esau as a lord. And this is interesting because the, the oracle that took place about the birth of Jacob and Esau said that the older shall serve the younger. However, what we're seeing here is that the younger is calling himself a servant in light of the older. And you say, well, what, what's the big deal? I mean, here's just one instance. Yes, but if you actually study the book of Genesis and go back through what we've studied, perhaps, or just read the story yourself relevant to Jacob and Esau, there is nowhere where it is true that the older serves the younger. We see the younger here serving the older, but we don't really see the older serving the younger. Now, many people have had a big problem with this. Um, How are we supposed to understand what's being said here? In what sense did the older serve the younger. In fact, it's important that we get this um, get this straight. If you go over to Romans chapter nine, Romans chapter nine is one of the famous passages that deals with, um, uh, you know, is thought to deal with the question of Calvinism. Uh, if you understand what Calvinism is, uh, Calvinism is a, uh, in in most cases, in the most common cases, a deterministic understanding of uh, how God exercises His sovereignty, such that. He has an elect people, and the Bible does teach that God has an elect people, but that he chooses individual people to be the elect, to be a part of the elect. And then uh, he passes over the rest so that if you're not one, if you're if you become a believer, it's because God chose you specifically to be a believer. But he didn't choose a lot of people and those people are going to die and go to hell. And he didn't choose them. And because this is a deterministic system in the most philosophically accurate sense, they could never have been saved because God didn't choose them for salvation. And Romans chapter nine is one of the if not the chief passage, one of the most well-known passages that 
Calvinists think is is in support of what they're saying. Because the Calvinist sees Romans chapter 9 as describing individual election to salvation, when um, many people like myself would, would actually not see it as a narrowing of salvation, but actually a broadening of salvation, because the whole book of Romans to this point has been arguing that it's not just that um, uh, only and all Jews are saved or on, only and all Gentiles are damned. It's that uh, among Jews and Gentiles, the ones that are in Christ are the ones that are going to be saved. And there's going to be many Jews and many Gentiles that are not saved. So, uh, but in this passage, this story um, or this language comes up about the birth oracle. In chapter 9 of Romans, verse 9, it says, For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's promise, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That is to say, Esau will serve Jacob, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is obviously very troubling uh, language in the Bible. It's troubled many people who don't understand it properly. And um, for Calvinists, it's been um, uh, probably troubling, too, for many Calvinists, but at least the Calvinist sees this as supporting his system. I mean, after all, we're talking about individuals, Jacob and Esau, um, and this is before they did anything good or bad, when they were still in the womb. Uh, it was decided that the older would serve the younger, and it was written that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, th there's a couple of interesting things about this, and, and I only bring all this up because with Jacob and Esau, there is nowhere in the story. Uh, of Jacob and Esau, where the older serves the younger. So either you've got, so you've got a couple of choices. You, you can, you can um, try to find a place to shoehorn it into the story in the early life of Jacob and Esau. And there are scholars that try to do that, but they're really reaching in my opinion to try and do that. Um, there's certainly nowhere where it's obviously the case that the older is serving the younger. Uh, you could say that in some, somewhere in, in the lives of these two men that happened, but we just don't have a record of it. Or you could say perhaps this older serving the younger is not referring to the individuals of Jacob and Esau, but is actually referring to the nations that these men represent, the nations that would come out of them. And that actually, there's actually some indication in the text to in Genesis and in Romans to suspect that that might be the case. Um, the, well, it's in Romans in the sense that Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 12 or 13, is pointing back to the story of the birth oracle and the story of the lives of Jacob and Esau. And it was said uh, that uh, about the twins when they were in the womb that two nations were warring in her womb. So right from the jump, there's this sense of nations. But beyond that, there's a pretty explicit passage that I think uh, must be brought up at this point. And that is in Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 says in verse 1, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now this is, this is the word of the Lord to Israel. Israel is the group of people that came out of Jacob, right? We're going to see in this story that Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And so this is the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you. Okay, well, that's what, that's what we learned both in Genesis and in Romans. That God loves Jacob. 
And here it says, I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So what is the sense of this love? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, okay, but I have hated Esau. Well, that's what Romans is talking about. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. And I have, well, how did he hate him? Well, here he's going to tell you how he was hated. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Um, so what, what you need to see here is the way that God loved and hated, uh, the way God loved Jacob and hated Esau was not with some sort of an emotional affection. I mean, that's how we as Westerners typically think about love. And I don't doubt that sometimes that's the way the Bible talks about love. But there are times where love is meant to, uh, meant to refer to the way you treat someone. You can really dislike someone and yet still treat them with love. And that's why it's possible to love your enemies, even in some cases where it might be impossible to drum up feelings of affection toward your enemies. You can still choose to act in love toward them by doing things that benefit them and giving of yourself for the good of another. Likewise, hating someone is doing, uh, you know, bringing some sort of destruction. And uh, that could be done certainly by God as a, a judgment. And, and yet we could call that hating, but it doesn't mean that God has some emotional um, uh, anger uh, or hatred in the sense that we think of it. Now, he might have some anger, but it doesn't mean that he has the sinful sort of hatred that we're thinking about. So uh, these don't, are not necessarily emotions. And the Bible is pretty clear, if you take all the biblical data on this, that this isn't talking about individuals. This is talking about nations. And it's not talking about the uh, emotional feelings of love and hatred. It's talking about what God did to those groups that came out of these men. And if you do that, then you can certainly look at times in history and say, okay, there were times when the older served the younger, if we're talking about the nations that came out of these men. And that makes sense, and it makes sense of the biblical data, and it's not at all a reach. Um, it fits. It just fits. And of course, it also has ramifications for the case in Romans chapter 9, because now you can't really as easily make a case about election, individual election to salvation when it looks like we're talking about nations of people and through whom God is going to bring uh, the promise. So uh, I think all of that's important, and I hope that makes sense of that, because you might read that and, and say, well, where is the older serving the younger? In this passage in uh, Genesis chapter 32, we're actually seeing the younger serving the older. And so that's, um, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Let's look at um, verse 6 now, and let's, uh, let's keep, uh, well, let's see. Did I, did I get down to verse 6? Yeah, I, I think I did. Let's just start over in verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. He also commanded him, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says the servant of the Lord, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. So he's wanting to head this off. He's wanting to get to the point with Esau. He's afraid that Esau is going to come and kill him, frankly. Um, because the last time they met, there was, there was definitely a problem. And so he's, he's wanting to find a way strategically to appease Esau. Um, so let's look at verse 6 now. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Okay, now this now if he had reason to worry about Esau, so he knows why is he why did he reach out to Esau to begin with? Well, he's got to come into this land that's been given, and that means he's going to have to deal with Esau at some point. So let's just deal with it. Let's deal with it right now. I want to have this looming over me, 
and let's look for a way to, to kind of, you know, calm him down if he's still upset, or at least test the waters and find out. I'm not going to go see him. Send, send these guys to go see him. Um, and now he knows that Esau is coming and he's got 400 men. Now, this is shocking and kind of scary. It's a worrisome thing. It says in uh, verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. Remember, we said he would have two camps uh, within himself. He's dividing his camp. Well, why is he doing that? Uh, verse 8, For he said, If Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So he's trying to say, he's preparing not necessarily for combat, but kind of preparing that, hey, if it is, the, if they come after, if Esau comes after me, well, at least I can hold on to some of my holdings and some of my heads of cattle and some of my family if I divide this thing up this way. And so that's, that's important, right? Um, and so he's trying to prepare the best he can. Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. Um, I, am, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Here, Mahaim comes up again, two companies. Now, you know, notice here, he's praying. He's still saying, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. The whole issue here is that he has still not made this God his God, and there are conditions he's put on that. And we're going we're gonna to see that re resolved by the end of this whole thing. But he's praying at least. He's strategizing and he's praying. Now, um, strategizing is not a bad thing. Some people would say, and, I, and some people do say about this passage, that what's going on here is uh, uh, Jacob is still trying to solve this in his own strength. Instead of looking to God, he's trying to like he's praying, but really he's trying to solve this on his own. Well, listen, my father used to um, uh, use this phrase and I grew up with it. Pray like it all depends on God, because it does. But work like it all depends on you, even though it doesn't all depend on you. And the idea there is kind of like what we're seeing with Jacob here is pray, but don't be lazy about it. Pray and act at the same time. In other words, have your theology straight and understand that um, the prayer is important and you want God involved and ultimately uh, it all does depend on him. Yet at the same time, uh, it may be that the way God answers this is through something that you're led to do, something that you do, um, or how God uh, providentially acts um, in the circumstances while you're doing something. So he doesn't want his people to be lazy. And I don't think there's anything wrong with what Jacob does here in trying to have a strategy and be wise, but at the same time, uh, depend on the Lord. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think actually what we're beginning to see is a softening of Jacob as we're moving forward. I mean, he, he's had a lot of pressure. Just yesterday, he had Laban, and now he's got this thing about Esau. And uh, this is a lot of stress, and, and, and God is working in the midst of that, perhaps, to soften Jacob. Verse 11, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Now, um, uh, Walter Brueggemann again says, the preparation involves more than stratagem. Because of his shrewdness, Jacob can plan. Because of his vulnerability, Jacob must pray. So he's becoming, he's get, starting to realize how vulnerable he is. So that's leading him to pray, but he's also planning. 
Um, so Jacob is counting on God, but still trying to strategize on a human level. But he's also kind of dealing with God here. I, I don't know if you've ever tried to wheel and deal with God, but we see the biblical characters doing that. Um, Moses does that um, at times when God is about to, or at least saying that he's about to wipe out Israel and Moses steps in and says, what are the other countries going to think about you that's going to make you look bad? And um, you know, answer this prayer on even just for your own sake, if not for anybody else's. So, uh, and God listens to that sometimes. So, uh, so here he's, he's kind of wheeling and dealing with God. You said you were going to make my descendants like the sand of the sea. So please take care of me here. And that's a reasonable prayer. And, you know, there have been times where I've prayed and tried to deal with God in a good way and times in a bad way. For instance, um, whenever I first went into the ministry, I told God, I said, Lord, I will, I will do whatever you want me to do. I will go wherever you want me to go. I'll serve you in any way you want. Just please. I have two conditions. Lord, don't send me to Jacksonville, Florida. The first 10 years of my life, I had been living in Jacksonville, Florida. And our family didn't really have the best um, memories of Jacksonville. I had good personal family memories, but in terms of what happened down there, it's too much to get into now, but, but we, I didn't want to go back to Jacksonville. And so I said, don't send me to Jacksonville, Florida, and don't send me to some small town in Tennessee. I'd always been a city boy growing up in, well, Jacksonville and then Nashville. And so I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to live in a small town. And I guess I thought that God um, needed me so much that he would not that, that he'd be willing to grant my uh, requests. Uh, the first place that I pastored a church was in Jacksonville, Florida. And the second church that I pastored was in a small town called McMinnville, Tennessee. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, I think now my prayer life should be, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Just please don't send me to Hawaii or something like that. Um, but the point is, uh, that was trying to deal with God, perhaps manipulate God or something, but there have been times where I've prayed much in the way that I think some biblical, uh, prayers come that are reasonable where I've said, Lord, you know, I, I'll, I'll, um, I, I'm not the greatest man. And, and I pray that you would work through this ministry. I pray that when I preach that, um, we would see fruit from that in people's lives. And um, I probably do have some selfish, selfish interests in that. I, I want to be successful in my life. I want to be seen among other preachers or other apologists as successful. And I know that that's the wrong motivation, ultimately. And so I'm trying to work on that, God. But if you, if you wouldn't answer this prayer because of that, because perhaps not all of it comes from the most pure place, would you answer it for the sake of the people? that need to be saved, the people that need to hear the gospel, the Christians who need to hear your message to them and for your own namesake. Now, that's not an attempt to manipulate God. That's being honest with God. And we see the authors of the Bible doing that. To, or the, I'm sorry, the characters in the Bible doing that, too. So I don't know there's anything wrong with that to uh, to rely on the promises of God, rely on what God says he wants to do or what you suspect he might want to do, willingly understanding that it may not turn out the way you want, but praying that way. Um, so I think all that's important. And so Jacob prays that way. Uh, verse 13 says, So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats. Now, now I want you to self-consciously notice the order of these animals and, and things. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. 
He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. So what um, it looks like, generally speaking, is happening here is He's sending out these droves incrementally of gifts, basically, for Esau. And it seems like he's, he's sending out the more valuable gifts were, were, were put in the back, and, and the less valuable gifts, but still valuable, were sent first. And when you count up all that he sent, it's a, it's a sizable um, gift. I mean, this is a very, uh, very generous gift. But he's sending them... Um, in this way so that Esau would get these. And as he went further, he'd get another section of gifts and another section of gifts. And that this would ideally wear down Esau. If Esau was angry, if Esau was mad, if Esau was coming there to kill Jacob, then as he received these gifts, one after the other, it would kind of wear him down and, and, and change his heart. You know, um, that's, that's not a bad strategy, frankly. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, and so that's, that's what we see happening here. So in verse 20, it continues, And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him. And so he's even telling him what the plan is. Jacob says to tell Esau what the plan is. I'll appease him with present that goes before me. Um, with the present that goes for me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. Now he rose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. So what appears to be happening here is he's putting his family in a safer place while he stays behind on the other side of the river um, but he, but he's cl- clearly fearful. What's going to happen here? He's experiencing a great amount of anxiety, it seems, from his actions. I mean, it tells us that he's distressed. And I don't know if you know what that's like. Some of you, no doubt, do. I have personally dealt with anxiety issues throughout um, at least the past 10 years. And it's a horrible feeling. Uh, you have this sense of doom. And, and that something's going to go horribly wrong. It's, it's worst of all when you don't know why you feel that way. And that's the point at which you, you probably need to certainly pray and seek spiritual advice, but also get some help in, in other manners. But, um, but at the same time, uh, when you do know what it is, it's still terrifying. There have been times where uh, I thought that something horrible was about to happen in my life. Um, I, about a year ago, there was something going on, a little over a year ago, where there was a little bit of a, not a major thing, but a little bit of a threat to uh, my family's stability. Uh, not, not from within my family, from people that might wish to do harm to my family and, uh, and to my ministry. And, it, and it, 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 was, it, it wasn't, it was, a, it was a substantial threat, but not one that was likely to come true in the way that I imagined it. But of course, that's the thing with anxiety. Your imagination runs wild. And you might take something that's not a huge deal and make it the biggest deal ever. They call that catastrophizing. And I've done my fair amount of that. It's a horrible, miserable feeling. And here we find that Jacob is experiencing his own catastrophizing probably in this passage. He's certainly anxious. 
and um, and any and you can have uh, dreams that are horrifying in that sort of experience. And some people think that's what's going on with what comes next, but I certainly do not, and I'll tell you why. Verse twenty-four says, "Then Jacob was left alone. He's alone at night, and and he's he's out here. He knows what's coming. Esau's coming, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man." wrestled with him until day. that's strange when he saw that he had not prevailed against him he touched the socket of his thigh so the socket of jake that's the the man touched the socket of jacob's thigh um, so that it was dislocated while he wrestled with him then he said let me go for the dawn is breaking but he said i will not let you go unless you bless me so jacob's got hold of this man and says i'm not going to let go unless you bless me so he said to him what is your name and he said, Jacob. And remember, Jacob had a meaning, supplanter, the one who's grabbed the heel uh, of his brother, the, the, the deceiver, in a sense. He's a supplanter. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, um, people have argued about what the name Israel actually means. But um, at one point, people thought that it meant something like prince with God or something like that. But really, in context, I mean, a lot of times the Bible kind of gives you the answer. It, you know, he's been named this because, you know, and in this passage, we have something like that. You know, if you look at it, it says for you, Jacob, but your name's going to be Israel for you have striven with God. And for that reason, many people think that it means something like one who wrestles with God or one who strives with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. He said, I've seen God. Now we've been told this is a man. And now he says, I've seen God face to face. Um, and my life has been preserved. Now, the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. And this is commonly thought to be the, sciatic, the, the, the sciaticus. Sorry. Now, this is a strange story. I mean, right, man, this guy's, of course, of course, this is a monumental moment when the angel changes Jacob's name to Israel. Um, but it's a monumental moment of importance um, whenever God changes someone's name. He changed Abram's name to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus changed, changes Simon's name to uh, Kephas or Peter. And names are supposed to indicate something about the children. When you name someone, even when parents just name their kids, it's supposed to have some significance to the name. And Jacob's name we've already talked about, and now he's got this new name of one who wrestles with God or struggles with God. Um, about this, Victor P. Hamilton in the Evangelical Commentary on the Bible, Volume 3, says, As with Abraham in chapter 17, a new name indicates a new destiny. The first evidence of real spiritual transformation in Jacob's life is that he receives a new name. Now, some people think this was a dream, um, maybe brought on because of anxiety like we talked about, but that doesn't make sense of at least one feature that's really obvious in the story, and that's the chronic limping that, you remember, he touches, he touches Jacob's um, 
uh, thigh, and, and, he has, and, and he has a problem there. He overcomes Jacob in that sense by doing that supernaturally. And then, and then we learn that, that chronically for the rest of his life, Jacob limps after this event. Um, and at the end of the, so I don't think it's a dream. And, then, and it's also important to note that at the end of this encounter, we've been told this is a man. It's said to be an angel. But at the end of the encounter, Jacob concludes that this is God. And he has good reason for concluding that it's God. First of all, he was able to cripple Jacob with just a touch. I mean, he could have done this at any point in the encounter. He could have just touched Jacob's uh, thigh and crippled him all along. This was something of um, imagery. I mean, it really did. I believe this really happened, but it's also imagery to make a point. And we'll talk about what that point is in just a moment. But then secondly, it also seems to be God because whoever this is has the authority to grant Jacob a new name. Um, so that that's important. But also the Bible talks about this elsewhere as well. In Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, it says, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. So notice something. Um, he says he contended with God, and then synonymously with that, it says, yes, he wrestled with the angel. So was it an angel? Yes. Was it God? Yes. We've seen throughout um, Genesis, as we've been looking, instances of, uh, and, and well, you'd see it throughout the Old Testament too, elsewhere, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. That's, um, and, and that is often thought to be, and I certainly hold that that is a theophany. It's God appearing in some way. And in fact, um, could be a Christophany. This could be Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Uh, but whatever the case may be, it's God. It seems to be God. The biblical text seems to um, uh, require that if you are a Bible-believing Christian who thinks all this is true and inspired of the Holy Spirit, then this was God that he wrestled with. So he struggled with God, and, um, and we see this here with, uh, with the angel. Now, but, but why was this whole struggle happening? Well, Jacob had been a man who... To this point in his life, he had struggled with God, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way throughout his life. Um, certainly in the spiritual sense, now he's 97 years old and on the run, and he's completely stressed out about his brother. Um, he's been stressed out because of the thing with Laban. Now he's stressed out because he's got this thing going on with, the, with this angel that, that it's God. You know, He's wrestling with God. And he's constantly put conditions on God. He's never yet made God his God. It's always been the God of my father, the fear of Isaac, you know, these kind of things. And he's never made God his own God. And he's put conditions on his making God his God, even though he has seen God in dramatic and obvious ways working. And you would expect that by this point, he would have submitted and bent the knee. I mean, how much does it take that he would ultimately bend the knee. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons for that may well be because he's been a pretty resourceful guy in his life. He hasn't really needed people, at least not for many years, as he's been pretty, you know, doing things pretty well. Now, he knows that the development of his flock was God's doing, and a lot of these things were God's doing. But but in his mind, he could think of himself as a pretty capable guy. And he was pretty, I mean, I like how Steve Gregg puts it. He's He's pretty scrappy that at 97 years old, he's able to wrestle all night long with an angel. And we know something about angels. Angels, an angel could kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. So um, 
That's pretty serious. Uh, but he didn't, it could be that Jacob didn't necessarily think that he needed God yet. And it could be that God is providentially controlling things that are happening in, in Jacob's life such that it's weakening him. We saw, I said a moment ago, a softening of Jacob as he's scared of Esau. And he had that whole thing with Laban and, and things are, this is all happening in a relatively short period of time. And of course the future is uncertain. And, uh, and, and, and this is, he's like in a pressure cooker now. And often when people experience that sort of a situation and they pray the kind of prayer that Jake has been praying, that is a good, that, that person has a good possibility of bending the knee and submitting to God. Why? Because they realize their need for God. Many people don't see their need for God. You know, um, the, many of the atheists that I encounter in my ministry don't think they need God. Why do I need God? I don't need God for morality. I don't need God to get through life. I don't even need God in my death. I'm perfectly fine with dying this way. Well, they don't realize their need for God, but the need for God is certainly there. There's one particular individual atheist that I have dealt with quite a bit, and his position on all of this is, well, you know, um, I, I, why should I? Why should I? Let's say your God exists. Why should I care to submit to him and do what he wants? Well, because he's God. Okay, why should I care what God wants? Well, because he's your maker. Well, why should I care what my maker wants? Well, because he designed you with a purpose. Well, who cares what his purpose is for my life? I'm going to make my own purpose. Well, because it, the moral thing, the right thing for you to do is to do what God wants. Well, why should I care what the moral thing to do is? Why should I care what the right thing is? I'm perfectly fine on my own. All you can say to such a person is, I can't make you recognize why you need God. I can't get you to that point. I can tell you what's on the line. I can tell you about heaven and hell. I can tell you about the kingdom of God, that you are supposed to be a part of it. But, but you know what? If that's not what you want, I can't make you realize that you should want it. I can't make you realize that you need it. And so long as someone's in that state, it's very hard to get them to come around. Perhaps that's part of why Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter, enter the kingdom. So you see, this is, um, this is a, an ongoing struggle that people will have. And it's always awful when someone experiences sickness or illness or financial collapse or some other tragedy. But one thing that we can see in the midst of that tragedy is an opportunity for God to have a foothold in that person's life that they might come around because they see their need for God. Okay, so um, one thing that I want to say here is we talk about um, Jacob overcoming the angel, one of my favorite rock and roll bands when I was uh, younger and still one of my favorite rock and roll bands has a song where it famously says Jacob wrestled the angel and the angel was overcome. Well, that is how uh, people talk about this. And, and it seems to be what's what's given here. He overcomes all through the night. But remember what we said about an angel, an angel, eight, eight, 800, uh, sorry, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. He could have made short work of Jacob. The reason that, J that the angel goes along with this is probably to show him, you have been wrestling with me all your life. At what point are you going to submit? Because God doesn't want to have to force us to submit. Again, this may speak to the issue between Calvinists and Arminians and people that discuss the relationship of free will to God's sovereignty. Um, there, there are groups of people, Calvinists specifically, who think that God determines. And it, it's not that you don't choose to submit. It's just that that choice was determined. And God's grace is irresistible, which means literally impossible to resist. Um, but when we look at stories like this, it sure looks like 
God is not trying to force Jacob to bend the knee. God is trying to wrestle with Jacob and he wrestles with us and he wrestles with all kinds of people that they would freely recognize their need to bend the knee willingly. And so, uh, and, and Jacob is just a tough cookie to crack, you know, and he, but so, but ultimately his, his free will through his free will, he will come uh, to this point. And when you think about other biblical stories like Jonah, you know, uh, you know, I have even heard some Calvinists say, well, look, God, God wanted Jonah in Nineveh. So God sovereignly got Jonah to Nineveh. Well, no doubt. But if on the Calvinist understanding, the deterministic perspective would say, why didn't God just determine that Jonah would want to go to Nineveh and not run away? It really looks like Jonah was using his free will to run from what God wanted in his own wrestling with God's plan. And so rather than change Jonah's free will, God actually sent a storm and a big fish and all these kind of things to get Jonah there. Uh, but he never overwhelmed his free will. And that whole story and this whole story seems odd if that conception of God is true. But we won't get too much wrapped up in that further. Um, but Jacob won't let him go. Now, this is the funny thing. Jacob won't let this angel, God, go. Um, of course, God could go anytime he wanted, but he grabs a hold of him and won't let him go until he gets what he wants. But Hosea tells us that Jake, this was not like Jacob taking control and the big man, he's one now. And, and yeah, he had this issue with his thigh, but dadgummit, I'm still got a hold of you and I'm not letting go till you give me what I want. No, no, no. Hosea tells us that he's weeping at this point. He is broken. And so he won't let him go until he gets what he wants. And this is a point of surrender. And so he overcame. I mean, that is how it's described. He overcame the angel. But how did he overcome the angel? Well, he overcame the angel by submitting, by surrender. That's how you win in God's economy. In God's economy, you don't win by being better than everyone else, by doing the best job. You win by surrendering and saying, I can't do this by myself. I need you. That's why people that don't see the need for God have a hard time doing that. But it is, it is the, the correct response. And that's, of course, a New Testament principle as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we, despised, uh, we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivers us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. So Paul says, I mean, this is, you know, we've been told God will never put more on us than we can bear. And yet Paul is here saying we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. But why? Well, Paul tells us why. So that, this is, this is how Paul understands it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we uh, despaired even unto life. Indeed, we had the sense of death within ourselves. Here's why. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Ultimately, Paul says, this is why this happened. So we'd trust God. We had to surrender to God. That was winning. That's how you win. You surrender to God. In the same letter in chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the things that Paul was receiving and, 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 and giving, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me from becoming arrogant, 
There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ might, may dwell in me. So Paul says, I have this affliction of some sort. It's not clear exactly what it is. Um, that is a, a problem, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, in other words. And he asked God to take it away on three different occasions. Now, I have to say that when I run into these prosperity preachers who think that if you, the people that serve God the best are going to be healthy and wealthy, uh, by the way, the people that I know who serve God the best are sometimes sick and poor. But those people, I wonder what they'd say to the Apostle Paul. I guess he just doesn't have enough faith. He's not serving God faithfully enough because here Paul, none less than the Apostle Paul, asks God to remove this problem three times and it doesn't happen. Well, why doesn't it happen? Is Paul not faithful enough? No, because that sort of teaching is silly. What's happening is Paul recognizes that the reason that this is allowed to stand is because strength, the, God's power is perfected in weakness. And so you see, one of the things that we have to get uh, understand this is when a man is weakened in an obvious way, like with Jacob limping now, or whatever this thorn of the flesh that Paul had that may have been an obvious thing about him, um, when someone is weak that way, and yet something, God does something amazing through their lives, well, then the only one who gets the glory is God. Nobody can say it was because of that guy was just particularly um, exceptionally talented or that lady is exceptionally talented. No, um, it, it was clearly what God did. Now, as for not eating this particular muscle, it says that the Jews didn't eat this particular muscle um, that was touched and, and, and stuff uh, by the angel. There's nothing in the law that says that, that they have to do that. There's nothing in the law about that. It's just that some really observant Jews just decided to kind of go above and beyond and say, hey, look, this is something that God touched. Um, and so we're not even in other animals going to eat that particular muscle. Uh, verse 33 says, then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And this is about to go down. He put the maids and their children in front and Leah and her children next and Rachel and Joseph last. And notice <laughs> he's putting these kind of in, in the order of people he cares about the the least go up front and the people he cares about the most go in the back. Um, so, you know, the maids, they're going to go uh, and their children in the front and Leah and her children are next. And then his real, you know, um, heart and joy, Rachel uh, and Joseph go last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So now you shouldn't think about this as being something that like he went up to Esau and then bowed down seven times. That's probably not what happened. But he'd, he'd bow and then move forward and bow and move forward um, incrementally like this as a sign of, I mean, he's done this with the animals and the, and the gifts, and now he's doing it himself, trying to really make it clear. And we're probably a long way back. Esau sees him coming. He begins this process. But so that before Esau ever gets to him, he wants him. It wants it to be clear. I am trying to humble myself in every possible way that I can. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. What a powerful, powerful story! This is completely out of nowhere. 
And we're never told exactly why Esau feels this way. Was it just, uh, was it just because it was his brother? And maybe after all these years, he really has come to the point of just letting that be water under the bridge. And he's overwhelmed with love for his brother who he hasn't seen in so long. And, and maybe it's that. Maybe that's all it is. Is it because of the gifts that he, that Jacob has given? Did the plan work? Did the strategy work to kind of appease Esau? Maybe. Maybe it wasn't a bad plan. Maybe God did this uh, by doing a work in Esau's life. Um, there's, there is some indication of that in the text that we'll see in just a moment. But, you know, th there is something about relief here. You know, several years ago, there was a, a young man, well, he's my age, so to the extent that I'm a young man, uh, about uh, 10 or so years ago, uh, a benefactor of our school who thinks a lot of our school, he's a well-known pastor in Texas, his son um, had been in and out of prison uh, for years. And so his father asked us, can he come and work for your school as someone who takes care of the lawn and, and does, you know, handyman type stuff? And as a courtesy to him and our love for him, we did that. And it wasn't too long before he ended up um, committing another crime, very serious crime. And he ended up going to prison for quite a few years. And, um, and, and when he first went to prison, went back, well, when he first went to jail before he was sent off to prison, I went and visited him regularly in jail. Um, I feel like that's what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. And so that's what I was doing. And um, as I was doing that, uh, I realized that uh, he didn't always seem to appreciate it to the extent that I maybe thought he should. But I kept coming anyway, and I brought him um, uh, a Bible. At one point, he wanted to give to one of his bunkmates and had that guy's name inscribed on it and took that to him. And at some point, I stopped coming. And I know he wanted me to keep coming, but I just stopped coming. And so when it was time for his sentencing um, uh, or whatever, I went, to, I went to the court. His father asked me to, and I went. And um, when I saw him, he, he looked at me from behind the uh, little desk thing there, and he just kind of nodded at me in a way that I didn't know. I, you could interpret that in different ways. Is that, hey, friend, how are you? Or was it, I'm coming for you? And I didn't know. And so several years went by, and I didn't think too much about it, but then he was released from prison. And um, he wanted to meet with me. And I felt like Jacob meeting Esau. I thought, man this guy could kill me. He could stab me. If you knew what the crime was that he went to prison for, you wouldn't find that surprising, that suggestion. And when I saw him, he came running up to me and threw his arms around me. And uh, I don't know if he cried on my neck like in this, but it was obviously a very warm and excited embrace. And man, the relief that I felt, just overwhelming relief of all that anxiety. And we see something like that here. So that's a great feeling. And this is a very emotional moment here with Jacob and Esau. And now we see this. He lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company, which I have met? And he said to find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, why did you give me all these gifts? 
He said, well, to find favor with you. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand. For I see your face as one sees the face of God and you have received me favorably. So it's like I see your face as I see the face of God. It's like um, maybe you could say it's, it's, that's how happy I am. And that's no doubt true, but it also may be that he's indicating that God had some involvement here, that God answered Jacob's prayer by providentially working in Esau's life. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have plenty. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. But he said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant and I'll proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to my Lord at Seir. In other words, you go on to Seir. I'll meet you there. You know, you go on. Esau was offering to kind of serve as an escort. And he said, now you just go on. I'll, I'll meet you there. Mount Seir, by the way, is where the Edomites who came out of Esau would later live. But at this time, it would have likely still been controlled by the Horites. And the Edomites eventually had to conquer the Horites, just like the Israelites had to conquer the Canaanites. And we still don't know exactly why Esau brought 400 men with him. But it well could be, we know he was on the way to Mount Seir, and that's the country where these Horites were. And so it could well be that he was on his way there to uh, bring siege to some small holding that was there um, and begin a conquest. It could be that that's what's going on here. Um, But Esau said, please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkah. Sukkoth, Sukkoth is how I have said it all my life, and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkoth. Now, and the word means booths, so maybe that was a new innovation. That's pretty important. Now, this is weird. He doesn't go to meet Esau in Seir. Um, it, well, it may be that he, he did go on to meet Esau, but we're just not told that in the text. But it looks like he said, you go on, I'll meet you in, at Mount Seir. And he just doesn't go. Uh, but it, it, now this, if that's right, well, then dadgummit, he's reaffirming to Esau that he's still a deceiver, which that's not supposed to be who you are anymore, Jacob. And you're certainly not setting a good precedent for your future relationship with Esau. Uh, but now he, he bought property there to build a house. He would have had to have bought property. And this would have been the second property b- bought by his family in the promised land. Abraham bought property at Machpelah. And now we see this. But he, it's unclear how, he, how long he stayed there because of the next thing that happens. Now, Jacob came safe, safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. When he came from Padam Aran and camped before the city, he bought the land. He bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now, El Elohe Israel means the God of Israel. So finally, he acknowledges God as his God. Finally, after all of that, after all that struggling, finally he comes to God. Um, and that's pretty, pretty substantial. You know, why didn't he do this sooner? 
wrestle with God for so long? Well, you know, it's like Mike Lycona, the um, resurrection scholar, uh, had a debate several years ago with Matt Dillahunty in Austin, Texas. And in that debate, he read an email from um, a, a guy who was an atheist talking about uh, a story that that atheist had been aware of where a couple uh, had needed a certain amount of money and prayed about it. And through the course of events, it was an extreme answer to prayer that to the cent, this somewhat exorbitant amount of money was somewhat incredibly unlikely and miraculously given to them uh, without the person that gave it knowing or something. I, I forget the details. And, um, and in the same email, this atheist says, and as much as I've always wanted to believe in God, I just still don't have any evidence to believe in God. And it's like, what, what are you talking about, man? If that kind of thing isn't evidence, what is evidence? Um, and likewise with Jacob, you've seen so much. God has worked so miraculously in and around your life, and he's given you so much, and you've acknowledged with your lips that he's given you so much. Why did you have to wrestle with God so long and then literally wrestle with God <laughs> before you bent the knee? Um, you know, my, my father um, used to tell this story. He, my father pastored a church of... 5,000 in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, one night he was awakened by a phone call. Another well-known uh, preacher in the area had called him and was dying. And so my father raced across town in the middle of the night and went in uh, to, to meet with this uh, pastor on his deathbed. And my father began to pray. And the past, this man said, no, don't, don't pray for me. At least don't pray for me because I'm dying. I'm going to die. There's no question about that. Pray for me because I'm lost. And if I die, I'm going to hell. And my father said, what are you talking about, man? You have, you have witnessed the gospel to thousands of people. You built a great church. Everyone knows who you are. What do you mean by saying something like that? And he said, well, he said, here's the thing. Years ago, I knew there was a girl in the church that I wanted to marry. And I knew the only way she would marry me was if I went forward at an altar call at a church and did what the pastor said. So I went forward and I prayed some prayer, but it didn't mean anything. And, um, but I went down that aisle to get that girl. I didn't go down for God. But I, I, I became so good in Sunday school class at asking questions that were intelligent questions that they gave me my own Sunday school class to teach. And then in course of time, uh, I filled in for the pastor when he was gone preaching the morning service. And then another church heard about me and I was a good enough preacher. They asked me to be their pastor and I became their pastor. And then I built a huge church and the rest is history. But for all these years, I was preaching the gospel, but I had never submitted to God. And so, you know, it's, it's something because every week when I was preaching that people should repent and believe in Jesus, the spirit of God would speak to my heart and say, you're not even saved. And this man said that it was his belief that he couldn't be saved. Now, I don't know what ended up happening with that man. Um, my father led him in a prayer of salvation. But, of course, it's not just about saying a prayer. It's about being part of a kingdom. You know, the, the gospel message is about the kingdom of God. And, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a key part of that. But you become a part of a kingdom when you become a Christian. And being a part of a kingdom is an important thing that you recognize there's a king. Some people will say, well, I've made Jesus my savior, but it wasn't until many years later that I made him my Lord. Well, that's technically not correct. 
uh, when you become a Christian, you have a king. He is your king. Now, you may not be uh, obeying him like a servant of the king, but he is your king. He is your Lord. His being your savior is something that is a part of being in his kingdom. That's some, one of the benefits of being a part of his kingdom. But ultimately, he's your king, and you should do what your king says to do. And so, as a result of all that, don't be someone that wrestles with God. Don't wrestle with the king. Bend the knee to the king, and in your daily life, bend the knee to the king. And we'll try and endeavor to do that together. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio. Thank you.